That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. The United Kingdom is Boris Johnson, the prime minister of the UK, at least for the country of England, is saying, get your booster before the end of this month, this month being December. Originally, they had planned by the end of, November, uh, end of January, excuse me, but uh, they are seeing cases double every two and three days in the United Kingdom right now, the Omicron. Omicron is just ripping that country up. Okay, so Mark Meadows, the House Select Committee that is looking into the January 6th treason attempt, the coup attempt, writing about chief, Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, former cokehead, you know, Freedom Caucus uh, member of Congress. Uh, this is an excerpt from the January 6th Select Committee report. He, he participated in one such meeting in the Oval Office. These are meetings to overturn the election, right, to overthrow the election. He participated in one such meeting in the Oval Office with Mr. Trump and members of Congress. Oh, really? Who are those members of Congress? Which he publicly tweeted about from his personal Twitter account shortly after. He participated in another such call just days before the January 6th attack with Mr. Trump, members of Congress, attorneys for the Trump re-election campaign, and some 300 state and local officials to discuss the goal of overturning certain states' electoral college results on January 6th. Meadows now is the third person to face contempt of Congress citations after Jeffrey Clark and Steve Bannon. And, uh, you know, onward it goes. So Mark Meadows also provided the committee, I think probably inadvertently, it was buried in an email, but it was an attachment to an email, with this PowerPoint presentation on how to overthrow the government of the United States. I mean, I just laid it out. Why is this, and, and you know, we've known about this now for about a week. Why was this not the top story? And, you know, Meadows being held in contempt. Why was this not the top story in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the, the Oregonian, my local paper? Why wasn't it the top story on, on all, the, all the electronic websites? Why, it, why is it that the only news, frankly, the only news media that I've seen that have even been reporting on it have been Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman and a couple of shows on MSNBC. It's like, this was a big deal. This was revealed on Thursday of last week that he had this PowerPoint presentation. It would declare a national state of emergency. It would invalidate all the electronic votes. It would inform lawmakers that there's foreign interference and you need to shut down your, your state. 
And then let's not forget, you know, this uh, Meadows was basically in on this thing with a couple of other people. Like, for example, the Secretary of Defense, the Acting Secretary of Defense, uh, Christopher Miller, who wrote this memo on January 4th, two days before the, 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 the traitorous uh, coup attempt, who wrote a memo that says, and I quote, Without my subsequent personal authorization, the D.C. National Guard is not authorized to be issued weapons, ammunition, bayonets, batons, or ballistic protection equipment, such as helmets and body armor, is not authorized to interact physically with protesters, is not authorized to employ any riot control agents, is not authorized to share equipment with law enforcement agencies, is not authorized to use intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance assets, is not authorized to employ helicopters or other air assets, is not authorized to conduct searches, seizures, arrests, or similar law enforcement activity, and is not authorized to seek support from any non-DC National Guard units. Really? This is the Secretary of Defense. This is the head of the Pentagon saying, when these guys, two days before the attack, after a meeting with Meadows and Trump, issuing a memo to the National Guard saying, you may not stop these protesters. And now we're hearing in the media that the reason he gave for that was, oh, gee, it would look like the government was becoming like fascist or something, sending troops against our good citizens who are merely exercising their First Amendment right to uh, assemble and uh, petition the government for redress of grievances. Really? This is the Secretary of Defense saying, no, you may not do it. And then on top of that, well, I'll, I'll get to the insurrectionists actually right after the break and then pick up your phone calls. But, uh, you know, on top of that, we've got the, the D.C. National Guard saying, no, we can't do this. You've got Meadows saying that the Guard, this was another thing that came out yesterday. Mark Meadows had said that the National Guard would protect the pro-Trump people. You get that after, after Chris Miller, the Secretary of Defense, says, National Guard, you may not have weapons, you may not arrest people, you may not interfere with protests, but you must protect the protesters, which is exactly what happened. The protesters, in quotes, these traitors, attacked the Capitol, broke into the Capitol, defaced the Capitol, smeared feces all over the walls and the floor, busted up members of Congress's offices, put a gallows outside, tried to hang Mike Pence, were looking to kill Nancy Pelosi and other members of Congress. And Mark Meadows and the, and the Secretary of Defense said to the National Guard, this is just fine, this is, the, this is what you are supposed to protect. These people, you may not stop them. You may not intervene. What the hell is going on here and why isn't it on the front page of the newspapers? I mean, the whole, this whole traitorous attempt to overthrow the government of the United States is coming into focus. People need to be prosecuted. So our three stories you must know today, very quickly. Number one, the Supreme Court has said, uh, well, uh, maybe we've got some problems with uh, what's going on in Texas with using uh, independent vigilantes to uh, control women. But we're not going to do anything about it right now today. And uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor 
who was not having it. This is just a blistering response. She said the court should have put an end to this madness months ago before SB 8 went into effect. It failed to do so then and it fails again today. I dissent from the court's dangerous departure from its precedence, which established that federal courts can and should issue relief when a state enacts a law that chills the exercise of a constitutional right and aims to evade judicial review. By foreclosing suit against state court officials and the state attorney general, the court effectively invites other states to refine SB 8's model for nullifying federal rights. The court thus betrays not only the, system, the citizens of Texas, but also our constitutional form of government. Amen. Story number two. Uh, the House of Representatives successfully passed a law. It's called the Protecting Our Democracy Act. One Republican, Representative Adam Kinzinger of Illinois, joined every other Democrat except two. And I've been trying to find out who those two are, but I, so far I have not succeeded. Um, in voting for this, so it did pass, and it would dial back the powers of the president. Uh, this is basically it would prevent a future president from abusing office the way that Donald Trump did. And every Republican except one in the House of Representatives voted against this. Yes, we love presidents who abuse their power, say the Republicans. Where the hell are they trying to take this country? And finally, Starbucks in Buffalo, they unionized the store. Now, there were three stores that were holding elections. One unionized, one didn't, and one they're still counting the vote. Uh, but this is a, a new, uh, this union is called Workers United. It's an affiliate of SEIU, Service Employees uh, International Union. And uh, this is a big deal. There are 9,000 Starbucks stores across the United States. And this is a big deal. Keep an eye on it. I'm telling you, the times, they are a-changing. So, uh, picking up your calls, it's Anthony in Detroit, Michigan. Hey, Anthony, what's on your mind today? Good afternoon. Hey, listen, um, I'm perplexed why some of these representatives, uh, particularly the ones that's on the January 6th committee uh, investigation, and they say they use it every tool in the toolbox, why they are not using the uh, contempt. Uh, inherent contempt? contempt? Inherent, yeah, inherent contempt. They will not explain that. I'm, I'm confused and I'm really angry about it because they continue a lot of representatives, a few of them talking about it when they get on TV shows and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and when they get, some of them they get asked, they act like the, the, uh, the, the question, the host didn't even ask them that question. Why aren't they using it? I hope you can help me. Won't they explain that? Sure. Because a lot of these people talk about uh, these representatives, no one's above the law. I mean, it's getting to the point where Donald Trump is committing crimes right out and over. He's been doing that. And Mary Garland is just uh, twiddling his thumb. It's getting to the point where clearly th there are people above the law. Yeah. It's making me almost cynical where I said, what's the point of me voting? And why aren't they using? Uh, I'm all over the place here. Okay, let me, let me try to answer this, Anthony. There are, there are two ways that Congress, uh, there's a third way that's even more obscure, but there's two primary ways Congress can hold somebody in contempt. The first is the entire House of Representatives voting to hold a, a, a witness or, or anybody really in contempt of Congress and referring it to the Department of Justice for criminal prosecution. It's what they did with Steve Bannon. That is right. a relatively routine process. 
Um, it's been done, you know, uh, multiple times in the, in the past couple of decades. It was done a lot during the Nixon hearings, things like that. It's straightforward. Everybody knows how it works. It's been adjudicated by the courts. Uh, there's no dispute about it. Inherent contempt is something that has literally not been used by Congress since the 1920s. It, it's based on a, a provision in the Constitution that could be interpreted in a couple of different ways. And the concern about using inherent contempt right now is that if they try to hold somebody in inherent contempt, number one, there's no clear definition of exactly how Congress would enforce that. And number two, there would almost certainly be a challenge in court saying, sorry, you don't actually have this power. And, and then it would go to the court system. It may end up before the Supreme Court. It might be two, three years down the road before it gets resolved. And in the meantime, you know, Congress has changed. The administration has changed. Uh, you know, the, the guys got away with what they wanted to get away with. So Congressman Ted Lieu of California has signed on to a piece of legislation that would make crystal clear as a law how inherent contempt works and what kind of teeth it has. And it's a substantial piece of legislation. Ted Lieu has been tweeting about it. If you just check out his Twitter feed, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about, and he's got links to it. And he's trying to get the other members of Congress to pass this thing, to vote on it, and I frankly don't know where the, what the status of it is. I know two days ago I saw a tweet from him, be, you know, basically begging his colleagues and asking us to reach out to your members of the House of Representatives and pay, say pass this legislation for inherent contempt. It, of course, if it passes the House, it then has to go to the Senate, where it would be subject to a filibuster. So I'm not holding my breath on this thing, but I think it needs to be done. It would be a good and important step. But, you know, what they have left to them that is non-controversial, that has been through the process of judicial review and does work, we know it works, people end up in jail as a consequence of it, is the criminal referral to the DOJ. In that regard, Anthony, we're going to have to see how aggressive and how serious Merrick Garland is and his prosecutors about being willing to work with Congress on these things. And, and you know, there's some concern right now about that. You know, it looks like basically he's punting on some of these things and and frankly i think that we need to be bringing pressure on our members of congress there too the the department of justice is theoretically an independent agency it works for the president but members of congress can bring pressure on the doj they can bring pressure on the president who can make substantial pressure on the doj and i think we all need to be raising some serious hell saying you know you you guys are the are the last resort. You're the jailers. You're the, you're the ones who, who are the ultimate enforcers of, of the penalties that, that Congress lays on people and, you know, because, they, because they have violated the law, because they, they have you know, engaged in contempt of Congress. And uh, I would frankly like to see a much more aggressive Justice Department. I think Merrick Garland is trying to avoid being viewed as political which is, uh, in my opinion, uh, dangerous in this era. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out 
for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity, and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. One last story, our third story for the hour, uh, or maybe fourth, I don't know. In any case, the, the University of Chicago Project on Security and Threats, it's called CPOST, which is the acronym for that, was quoted by Barton Gelman in his Atlantic piece where he was talking about, you know, the actual danger of fascist of a fascist takeover in the United States following the 2024 election, how Republicans are preparing for this. Rather alarming. But then he gets into why is it that these Trumpy true believers are Trumpy true believers? What is it that is motivating them? They they looked at every county in the United States and every person who was arrested. It's been like you know over 800 of them now, and try to figure out what's the correlation. What is it that is causing these people to come from wherever they come from to Washington D.C. to try to overthrow the government of the United States? Was it politics? Was it that you know the Democrats had just taken over or were in danger of taking over? Was it that the Republicans had just won an election and they, you know, was it uh, demogra- demographics? Was it that people were poor in these counties? Was it that the counties had experienced a sudden loss of revenue or income? Was it that the comp- that the that these counties had uh, wealthy people in them that were see- seeing an explosion in wealth and it was upsetting people? You know what? What was it? They looked at hundreds of different variables, or dozens anyway, of different variables and different possible scenarios, and only one stuck. And this is from a uh, uh, just an absolutely brilliant post over at uh, Raw Story by Jordan Green, who's a staff reporter. It's titled, Why They Fight. It's not just about Trump. The insurrectionists believe their version of America is vanishing. And uh, I'll just share this uh, two paragraphs with you. It, it kind of summarizes the whole thing. University of Chicago Project on Security and Threats, or CPOST, as reported by Brett, uh, Barton Gelman in The Atlantic, quote, other things being equal, insurgents were much more likely to come from a county where the white share of the population was in decline. For every one point drop in a county's percentage of whites from 2015 to 2019, the likelihood of an insurgent hailing from that county increased by 25%. This was a strong link and it held up in every state. They found that, for example, 9% of these people 
believe, you know, of these Trumpies, nine, or excuse me, nine percent of Americans believe that the use of force was justified to restore Trump to the White House. That a fourth of young adults agreed, in year, in, or excuse me, of adults agreed in varying degrees that the quote the 2020 election was stolen and Joe Biden is an illegitimate president. The survey found that eight percent of Americans, equivalent to 21, Ameri 21 million Americans, hold both of these radical beliefs. 63% of the adamant insurrectionists believe in the great replacement theory that Tucker Carlson is out there peddling, that Jews are helping subsidize the replacement of white workers with black workers. Um, and they answered this question as a yes, quote, African-American people or Hispanic people in our country will eventually have more rights than whites. So turns out it's all about race. You want to look at what was animating the people who attacked the Capitol? And now you know why all these black officers, you know, Capitol Police, are telling these stories about being called the N-word and, and uh, you know, uh, being attacked on the basis of race repeatedly, as, you know, on January 6th. Surprise, surprise, right? Okay, let's pick up your phone calls here. Elliot in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, Elliot, what's on your mind today? Good Tom. With our 24-hour news cycle, if, if we don't have a way to change it, it, it's compressing the amount of time that, I don't know, fascism can take hold, you know? I mean, if you look at Germany and, and how long it took there versus how quickly we're changing a news cycle and how quick they're getting a message out uh, and how uncritically our news is, is covering this, it, it, it's just... It's a race. Let me make the opposite case, Elliot. I mean, you may well be right, but the opposite case is in the 1930s, the media in Germany, by and large, or throughout the late 20s in particular, uh, after Hitler got out of prison and as he was building his movement, uh, the, the German press thought he was a crank. You know, he was a failed painter who couldn't paint pictures of people. He was incompetent. And, uh, you know, he, he was just a right-wing crank, and they largely ignored him. And that gave him the space to kind of underground work the crowd, as it were, and build his movement. And, and, and the media, you know, in, in Germany then, you know, within a year of his becoming chancellor, was seized, was, was killed. Um, on the other hand, with a 24-hour news cycle, you've got multiple opportunities to expose what's going on. We're talking about Mark Meadows. We're talking about, you know, Jeffrey Clark. We're talking about, you know, what's, what happened in the, in the, in the Capitol insurrections in ways that it wasn't being discussed in 1932-33 in Germany. Well, com completely agree with you, but are we talking about it enough? Or, or mm. you know, the, the, the news cycle moves so quickly that we brush it aside and move to the next story and yeah. never Yes and no. I mean, this, this is my resolution. great... Yeah, and my, my biggest criticism of our electronic media, particularly television, network television, is that they pick three to five stories a day and just hammer those stories and right. that you know what this came out of the writers strike in the late 90s as i recall when uh, you know the hollywood writers went on strike and uh, the television production houses uh, had had to fill tv time and they so they literally invented out a whole cloth reality tv and suddenly we had reality tv well that went in that that seeped into the news media in the early 2000s and, you know, prior to that, if you watched a newscast back in the 90s or the 80s or the 70s or the 60s, you know, the ones that I can remember, it was a reporter reporting to you maybe 20 stories in a 30-minute newscast, sometimes, you know, 15 anyway stories. 
you know, here's Walter Cronkite. He's just going story after story after story after story after story. Now what you get in a full one-hour news show is basically five stories where the, the host comes on, sets it up, and then brings in for the next 15 minutes uh, two or three guests who opine about it, typically ex-Republicans, and, you know, putting a little spin on the news. And it's like the reality TV version of news. And that, I think, is doing us a, a huge disservice because we are, I, I agree with you, we are um, far less well-informed than we should be. Uh, so anyhow, I got I got to move along. Elliot, thank you for the call. It's a very thought-provoking uh, question that you're asking. Morris in Long Beach, California. Hey, Morris, what's on your mind today? Happy days are here again. Democracy is going to win. Happy days are here again. Ah, I think so, Morris. I actually do. I realize these are really dark times and uh, very difficult times, but I think that, you know, the sun is going to rise. I really do. Well, let me tell you why I'm so excited. I'm telling you, I'm really, I'm jumping up and down. I could jump higher than Will Chamberlain. Let me ask you a question. Who prosecutes treasonous behavior? Well, arguably the Department of Justice. Why? Happy days are here. So it doesn't matter if Congress should have a change from Democrat to Republican. Mm -hmm. if, the, uh, if the committee should get them referrals over to the DOJ, oh. the DOJ is not going anywhere. Yeah, no, it's right. And, and they've got a grand jury looking into this stuff, which most people didn't even know until two weeks ago. So, uh, you know, I think that uh, a whole lot of these Trumpies are swallowing hard. That, that was my point. That I, you know, I think that this is a, a short-term movement that is going to be remembered like the America First movement of the 1930s was, um, you know, with the, with the neo-Nazis and Charlie Lindbergh, you know, and those guys uh, marching against, um, against uh, Roosevelt. And, and, and for that matter, the businessmen's coup, you know, when they tried to overthrow the White House. So. Well, I, I, I was a little nervous. Like most Americans, I'm thinking, gee whiz, if this thing don't go down before this Congress gets out of power, right, which, you know, mm -hmm. statistically and historically, that we're looking at that to take place. Uh, yeah. Well, then all this thing was moot. Not necessarily. No, wait if for the hearings. Okay. Yeah, Liz Cheney has okay. given us a preview. In January, we're going to start seeing public hearings where these guys are going to be paraded out in front of the TV cameras. It's going to be like the mafia hearings in the 60s, which, by the way, led to the end of the mafia. And, or at least as we knew it then. And I'm, I'm with it. I'm with you. Morris, thank you for the call. Stephanie in Kankakee, Illinois. Hey, Stephanie, what's on your mind today? Well, what's on my mind is we have to push the message of local elections, even down to the oh, donkeys. Because the town I live in has, the, the small town has 400 people. The mayor is trying to bring us in natural gas. Meanwhile, the state is trying to go uh, renewable. And they can, and our mayor has convinced them by being paid off by Nycor, I suppose, mm -hmm. that we need natural gas. And we were like, well, why can't we go with the rest of the state and get renewable? Because every town around us has a solar farm but us. Yeah. And so who you put in your office makes a difference. He won't fight for us to get renewable energy. Yeah. No, because he's being paid by the gas company to get the you know, Nycor gas to put gas in our little town. Right. And we have the largest concentration of black organic farmers, and we don't want it because of that. Right. So your local elections matter more than anything. Right now, the GOP is putting in people from, from the, like you said, from the dog catcher on up that's going to vote their way. And the next election in 2022 is going to go their way because they're going to have everybody in every level of government on their side. Yeah, I think, I think that's a possibility, Stephanie. I, in fact, I think it's a, a probability. But I don't think it's going to last, and I think that it will, I, frankly, I think it'll blow up in their face. We'll see. 
But you're absolutely right. Steve Bannon is out there pushing his, uh, and he's got one of the largest podcasts in America. He's pushing his, um, uh, his so-called patriots to become yeah. precinct committee people at the Democratic Party. I mean, they're not just looking at, at public elected offices. They're looking at elected offices within the GOP, um, you know, taking over the party. And I'm, I completely agree with you. The local elections are critical, and getting inside the Democratic Party and participating is, is critical. Stephanie, that was brilliant. Thank you so much, and thank you for listening to us on WCPT. Back with more of your calls in just a moment. It's the Tom Hartman program. Speaking the truth to transnational corporations, but I'd really rather you weren't talking about. We'll be right back. Change starts with you. You can be calling your Democratic or Republican representatives to let them know what you think by calling 202-224-3121. It's the Capitol switchboard. It'll get you right through to them. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is by John W. Dean and Bob Altmeyer. It's titled Authoritarian Nightmare, Trump and His Followers. Uh, this is from the first chapter starting on page 19. Uh, COVID-19 and authoritarianism in America, a tale of two diseases. From time to time, American presidents have thoroughly pinned themselves to disastrous positions. Lyndon Johnson's decision to get heavily involved in Vietnam comes to mind, and Richard Nixon's insisting on a cover-up. Donald Trump told the American people over and over that the COVID-19 virus was not worth worrying about. It was just like the flu. He had it completely under control. It was not going to affect anything. And he meant it. He did practically nothing to protect America, and he kept the government from doing much as well, even though its medical officers and scientists were pleading to do something. No previous president, however, has tried to change history when his actions became an undeniable catastrophe. Lyndon Johnson, for example, chose not to seek re-election in 1968 when he saw how deeply divided the nation was over the war. He did not say, I never said we should send troops to Vietnam. Richard Nixon resigned when he saw that he would lose the impeachment vote in the Senate in 1974. He did not say, I was never involved in the cover-up of Watergate, when his secretly self-recorded conversations said otherwise. But friend and foe must agree that Donald Trump has tried to deny the undeniable about his reaction to COVID-19. He says he always took it seriously. He said he knew it was a pandemic before anybody else. He says he never said it would miraculously disappear once spring came. He says he reacted perfectly to the danger, 10 out of 10. He has a long list of others whom he blames, but he himself was not at all responsible for what happened to America. Whether you may like or loathe Donald Trump, the record is indisputable that this is simply not true. But as remarkable and unprecedented as his level of mendacity may be, even more remarkable is the fact that about half the country appears to believe this monumentally false rewrite. You can see the average of his daily level of support in public opinion polls at 538's How Popular Unpopular is Donald Trump. Except for the small bump at the end of March when his approval rating reached nearly 46%, he found favor with about some 43% of the Americans surveyed day after day, week after week even after he wondered aloud if injecting bleach into people would cure the virus, even after he said the crisis was over and we should go back to our normal lives, although tens of thousands of new COVID-19 cases were being recorded every day. No matter what he says 
Roughly 43% of Americans remain with him. You must wonder, is there anything he could say or do that would change the minds of his supporters? As the United States was reaching its 100,000th COVID-19 death, a white policeman in Minneapolis was recorded on video by a passerby murdering a black man who was handcuffed and being held down on the pavement by, uh, by a knee on his neck for nearly nine minutes. The man, George Floyd, begged for his life. The policeman, hand casually in his pocket as he pressed his knee on Floyd's neck, showed supreme indifference before cameras as the onlookers begged him to stop. Floyd's dead body was removed by an ambulance, and the video was posted online where it went viral. Small protests broke out that night, May 25th, in the city, and more occurred the next day. When the horrific video became a national news story, demonstrations against police brutality grew and spread to other cities. On May 27, President Trump tweeted he had ordered the FBI to investigate the killing. The next day, he told reporters in the Oval Office that the video of George Floyd's death had been very shocking and was a very bad thing. But when asked, he refused to say whether the police officers involved should be charged with murder. Reports from the White House suggested Trump was torn between two groups of advisors on what he should do. One group wanted him to be sympathetic with the African-American community. The other camp reportedly warned he would lose measurable support from his base if he did not take the side of the white policeman and condemn the demonstrators as radical leftists and terrorists themselves. Trump stood at a potentially historic moment in his presidency when he could have helped rectify 400 years of unconscionable racial injustice and head off the biggest outbreak of racial protests the country had seen in 50 years. He had a chance to do what a president should do, unite the country in time of peril and try to solve its problems. It was most definitely not the time to fan the anger of the black community, city mayors, and various governors by attacking them. But if you know anything about Donald Trump and the people in his base whom he wanted to please above all others, you could have predicted which way he was going to turn. Trump became president with a reprehensible record for dealing with racial matters. For example, in April 1989, a white woman jogging alone in Manhattan Central Park was assaulted raped, beaten, and left for dead. The book is Authoritarian Nightmare by John Dean and Bob Allmeyer. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman.
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Lowell in Mount Lake Terrace, Washington. Hey, Lowell, what's on your mind today? Hi, I think I just heard uh, something about the only thing from stopping the voting rights bill from being passed is the House Parliamentarian. It wasn't uh, voting true? rights, it was immigration. Oh, was it immigration? Yeah, they tried, to, they tried to put immigration reform into the Build Back Better bill, and the parliamentarian said, no, you can't do that. Okay. Yeah, I am offline there. <laughs> okay, thank you, Lowell. Carl in Ocala, Florida. Hey, Carl, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, thanks for taking my call. You know, all these bills that build back and all the wonderful things that we're doing for the working class and everything are not going to get passed or get mean anything or even stop from being changed when the Republicans take over in 22, if we don't do something about voting. I agree. Is there any way, my question is, I'm not a lawyer, I don't know, but it seems, and I never thought I would, after 30-some years as a Lincoln-esque Republican, uh, nine years ago, I decided that no longer for me and re-registered as an independent. Is there some way in which we can modify this uh, filibuster rule for the passage of a single law or a single rule at a time? It happened. Uh, to, it did? Yeah, it did, Carl. The Senate passed a, I don't know if they did it as passing a law or if they did it as a rule change, but in order to, uh, to deal with the federal budget and, and you know, move things through the Senate, they passed a rule yeah. that is going to allow the Democrats without uh, the filibuster, to get around the filibuster, to pass the, the budget. And there's a bunch of Republicans who are just spitting mad about this. They only have 14 Republicans in the Senate to go along with this. But basically, they passed a one-time exception to the filibuster for this particular budget on this particular day. The, the Senate well, can change their rules anytime they want. They can go around their rules anytime they want. It just requires, frankly, to change all the rules. It requires a simple majority. And uh, I think that they had to get 14 because they did this as legislation rather than as a rules change. But they did get that 14. You know, I heard Senate. about that. Yeah, I heard about that. But, you know, if we don't change everything, none of these other laws are going to make anything. I agree. We need to change our we need to change our priorities. And by the way, what on earth is the matter? Any 14 year old debate student in high school would tell you if you don't swing back the same way you're being debated against, they're going to lose. We're talking uh, ideas and ideals and wonderful issues and all the things we want to do. And the Republicans are aiming at fears and anger and racism and cultism. And uh, we're not even fighting in the same war. We, yeah. It's like in the Marine Corps. If I went to war with a pen knife against somebody with a machine gun, I don't think I'm going to win. Yeah. No, yeah, I, I don't understand. I, I get it, Carl, and um, I think that 
There are a number of Democrats who are, I think the best example of what you're talking about right now is redistricting. You've got um, arguably oh, five, yeah. five, five democratically controlled states that could have given the Democrats as many as 15 additional seats in the House of Representatives if they had gerrymandered those states toward the Democrats' advantage, since they controlled those states, in this, uh, California being the largest of them, in the same oh, way yeah. that Republicans have gerrymandered their states. But the Democrats have been saying for a long time, we want these redistricting commissions, we think it's the right thing to do, and so we're not going to be hypocrites and do the wrong thing. And so by doing the right thing, they're, they're surrendering control of the House of Representatives. Now, the, yeah. the one thing that might reverse that is if they, if they you know, if these voting rights bills are passed, if they can get around the filibuster, which is what your call was, you know, started out with, yeah, if, if yeah, they can, yeah. if they can get around the filibuster and pass these voting rights bills, then a lot of the the redistricting, the the gerrymandering that the Republicans have done, will be uh, blocked or even reversed. But you know, that, there's a huge if there, and the Republicans are are you know not going to play ball on this at all because they are you know they don't give a damn about the future of the republic as long as. You know, of or the, at least the the future of what the founders called republicanism. You know, in other words, you know, representative democracy. Yeah. What yeah. they want yeah. is power yeah. and and money. I mean, they just it all boils down to those two things for these guys. And I and they've got their this ideological justification that you know you can't trust the rabble and the average person is just going to try and vote themselves all the welfare they can and yeah. and how dare they take it all from us. And you know they've got, I mean they've got a philosophy here. And I, and I think that the, the, the only thing we can do, I mean, the, the, the major force we have is to constantly be banging on the doors of our Democratic senators in particular, including Manchin and Cinema. but they're not the only ones who are skitzy about the, the filibuster, and letting them know that we want voting rights. That, and it's not just 20 young you know, college students in Arizona who are starving themselves, and it's not just you know, uh, Joe Madison yeah. in Washington, D.C., who's starving himself you know, on hunger yeah. strike on these things. It, it's all of us, and we just need to constantly reinforce that message over and over and over again. Chuck Schumer needs to hear it. Members of the House need to hear it as well because they are not without the ability to lean on their Senate colleagues. It doesn't happen as, you know, quite as effectively. We all need to be on this. Beyond that, I, I don't see, you know, any kind of magic power we have, but I, I think that that's what we need to do. Carl, I got to move along, but thank you for the call. It is spot on. Judy in Carpentersville, Illinois. Hey, Judy, thanks for listening to WCPT. What's up? Thank you. I have a question. Okay, go for it. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. What is involved in what is required to uh, uh, appoint a special prosecutor? And is there a reason in that process that this was not done for the January 6th coup attempt? Right. Uh, I believe that... Actually, I don't know the answer to that question, Judy. I, my, my recollection is that it has to be done well no, I, you know I, I i think i know but i'm not sure that i know so i'm not i'm not going to say obviously there would have to be a sign off between the department of justice the, and and congress at, at some level i'm thinking about you know my my original thought was that it had to come out of the executive branch but i can't imagine that richard nixon would have signed off on a special prosecutor and i know that the law has changed twice at least since the time that Archibald Cox was going after Richard Nixon. So I'm going to have to educate myself about that, Judy, and, and uh, you know, 
I'll, I'll try to bring that information back to you next week, okay? I would appreciate that. Thank yeah, you. You're welcome. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know everything. I try. <laughs> I don't know everything. But I, I am concerned that, you know, the Justice Department and the administration, in their, I, I believe, in their effort to not appear partisan, have gone, have, have stepped back farther than they should have. But that, that's just how it looks to me. We'll be right back. Eric in Erie, Pennsylvania. Hey, Eric, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. I'm not known for my optimism anywhere, particularly where the American people are the arbiter. But if you look at just the example of America's own history, you've got the Reconstruction effort that was fervent after the Civil War. You've got the New Deal after the Gilded Age. You've got civil rights after the Red Scare and the Vietnam era. And then you could arguably say we had a little version of it with uh, gay and trans rights and interracial marriage and stuff in the 90s, where all of that finally pushed, and, and we could include marijuana as well. But um, this ugliness that bubbles up, I think we're, we're, that's what we're seeing. And another aspect is geopolitically. China and Russia, um, I think, are going to compel America into a tighter bond with its NATO and other democratic allies. Right. And that's going to inevitably have an influence on American people when they talk to their counterparts who have health care and education and safety nets and so forth. So I think, you, I think your optimism I may have to agree with here, though normally I wouldn't, but the historical record suggests it. Where yeah. we stand. And there, there are basically four great powers in the world right now. There's the United States there's the, and China, who have about equal size economies. Uh, China is pushing seven, it just beat uh, 17 trillion. We're around 20 trillion a year of GDP. Then you've got Europe, which I think is in the neighborhood of, what, 15 trillion, something like that. I, I'd have to go back and look at the numbers, so don't quote me on mm -hmm. Europe. And then you've got Russia, you know, which is economy-wise is the size of Italy. Nothing. But, yeah, it's nothing. But they've got several thousand nuclear weapons, and they've got a, a, a huge and sophisticated military, and they've got a cyber force that is not to be messed right. with. So, so you can't. The alliances. Right. And I'm thinking, A, you're right, Eric. B, I think that the United States is going to be binding itself closer to Europe. I think this was the great effort of the Trump administration was to break the bonds between the United States yep. and Europe. And that was being done by Donald Trump on behalf of uh, President Putin of Russia. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, I, it's clear in my mind that for the, for the four years that Trump was our president, he was an agent of a foreign power, if it not fully, at least partially. Sometimes. Yeah. And I think that the, it's going to be the U.S. and Europe and then China and, and Russia are going to create an alliance. And you're seeing increasing, yeah. particularly a security alliance. And I, I just... My fear is that that becomes the axis and the allies for World War III. Um, I, I very much hope that's that not the also, case. That could but, also be true. Yeah. But, uh, it, but it, I think the rising power of China is going to compel America for the first time since the World War II era. It's going to compel Americans to, to look at their European allies more favorably yeah. because we're China's just getting too big too fast, and we're going to have to bunch up. Oh, and we gave it to them. You know, in early 2001, George W. in April of 2001, George W. Bush proposed that China should be brought into the World Trade Organization so that American companies could f complete the process of moving their factories to China. 
They, he proposed that in April. It was accepted. It was adopted in December of 2001, month after nine, two months after 9-11. Nobody even noticed because it was right after 9-11. At that point in time, China's GDP was under $2 trillion a year. By 2005, that was 2001. By 2005, China was at $5 trillion a year. By 2010, China was at $9 trillion a year. And, by, and, and now they're at $17 trillion a year. I mean, it's just, uh, there, there's a, break, a great piece on this that was published over on the BBC website. I was reading this last weekend, titled uh, How America Gave China, you know, uh, handed, handed Our Economy to China or something like that. And, uh, and it's, then the, the gluttony, the American gluttony for loads and heaps of cheap Chinese plastic. Well, we're, it was more the American business. Dealer. No, because we used to buy cheap plastic from ourselves. It was American business <laughs> lusting after Chinese cheap labor. That's what was going on. Which Eric, I got overall consumer price. Yeah, well, there is that too. Eric, thank you. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Cynthia in Sherman Oak, California. Hey, Cynthia, what's on your mind today? I love everybody that was commenting today. I want to say that we've got to find a fabric for everybody to open this discussion about what it costs to live in the United States right now and the Build Back Better or the CARE Act, because you can be a senior on not enough Social Security because you are serving the community and you don't have enough to live on. You can have a disability that comes up like I have, which is a mild brain injury, or I take care and I am earning $15 an hour, but only six hours a week right now of somebody who has immune system disorders. And she doesn't get any money back from the community, from the federal government under the relief from COVID. So she can't live and keep her, her condo under what's going on because it's, it's segregated somehow. So I think we have to talk about seniors being able to be able to have a future and being able to to deal with when you live on a fixed income when it's not enough to live in california yeah i'm with you cynthia yeah I, you know my mother-in-law is 91 years old and i'm uh, i'm quite sure she's getting less than a thousand dollars a month from social security how do you live on that you know i just it's it's mind-boggling i get less than and i've had three years where i'm not allowed to earn but they have not reversed the seniors with disabilities and the loan forgiveness for grad school yeah so how can we, when even the sons of a college professor who influenced a friend of mine who just died of cancer, how can we deal with the fact that his son lived in the, in the bushes at UCLA in order to go to grad school and college? Wow. And this has been going on for a long time, and it's not just people who are black or 
who who started with disabilities. It's people who are just living who get hit by a car like I did. Yeah, I was passenger and I got hurt, and it's three years in. But there's no way that uh, unemployment talks to DOR, which is the Department of Rehabilitation, talks to the independent living people, talks to the doctors, and the doctors can be super super rude under the Senior Advantage plan. And I was looking forward to a new neurologist, and she was so mean. And there was no reason for it. I researched her background. I was looking forward to talking to her about my future and my existing problems. And finally, I had to say to her, I'm breaking into tears right now. I need to turn this conversation in a different direction. I never yeah. say that to a doctor. Yeah. But I mean, I have. Cynthia, I think that at the core of this right now, and correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of what you're speaking to is the cost of housing. And we have a real housing crisis in the United States right now in that our residential houses have become the hottest investment opportunity for foreign investors, particularly Chinese and Russian, and to some extent, uh, British and European investors. And I just, I think that's wrong. I think that we should not allow direct foreign investment into our real estate market. And then secondly, you've got, you know, giant corporations in the United States, hedge funds, you know, groups like BlackRock and whatnot, that are also buying up thousands and thousands of homes just so that they can rent them out and and then jacking up the rent and and i think that that's wrong and we need to we need to treat housing as something that is almost or the equivalent of sacred you know that that it is a completely special and protected category of of you know that is separate from the raw naked capitalism of the rest of the of the marketplace we'll be right back this is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is by N.B. Turner. It's titled, Is China an Imperialist Country? And it's from a relatively Marxist point of view. I think you'll find it fascinating. This is from the introduction. It has long been known and understood that the entire world has been under the control of capitalist imperialism. For a time, a section of this world broke from it, beginning with the victory of socialism in Russia and continuing through the Chinese Revolution, constituting a socialist world. Yet in time, the socialist countries, through internal class struggles in politics and economics, were seized by capitalist conciliators and advocates, and then by capitalists themselves, who were largely within the ruling communist parties themselves. First in Russia and later in China, when these counter-revolutions and coups took place, there ensued a period of entry and integration into the world imperialist system. The Soviet Union, at first under the existing signboard of socialism, continued much of its established national and economic power relations into a new socialist imperialist bloc, socialist in name, imperialist in reality. The Russian capitalist imperialist attempt to maintain this bloc, or important sections of what had been part of this bloc and its historic allies, has continued in the years since the socialist signboard was discarded. In China, the defeat of the proletariat and the capitalist capture of state power after the death of the great revolutionary Mao Zedong have also led to a period of integration into the world imperialist system. China still operates under a socialist signboard, but has conducted itself unambiguously as a capitalist power. Before the last decade, especially since the demise of the socialist bloc, the U.S. was commonly seen as the sole superpower to which all other powers had to defer. The system which the U.S. had designed at the end of World War II was global in scope and to some more democratic in appearance than the old colonial empires. But it was built around the elitist privilege of power and authority, meaning the U.S. as superpower was at the centerpiece of their controls. 
But in the last decade, the imperialist world system is not what it used to be. Throughout the world, corrupt and comprador regimes have faced significant and often unprecedented mass popular opposition movements, which have revealed the deep instability of the old neo-colonialist arrangements. Even in the EU, the product of imperialist designs to supplant the historic internecine battles, there has emerged ever-deepening crises and conflicts and movements to assert nationalist interests against one another. Against the threat of Islamic fundamentalism, the imperialist system, as directed by the U.S., has launched wars such as in Iraq and Afghanistan at huge costs, trillions of dollars, and immeasurable losses in political credibility and imperialist authority, as neither war has won any of the U.S.'s objectives. These clear failures at the hand of the largest and most powerful military force in the world do not bode well for maintaining the U.S.'s hegemonic domination of the world's imperialist system. And the economic and financial crises of the last half decade or more have stirred not only deep discontent, resentment, and popular political opposition within the ranks of the U.S.'s reliable allies, but it has brought to the fore the imperialist anti-U.S. challenges from other major powers, specifically China and Russia. Forces worldwide are studying these changes and considering how they must change the set of options at hand. The all-too-prevalent view that U.S. imperialism is so powerful, so dominant, and so capable of manipulating all manner of forces and bending them to its will has been, and continues to be, a dangerous twisting of reality. The sole superpower in this view has been attributed with omnipotent features that defy effective challenge, that reflect a supposedly skillful control of contradictions and crises that afflicted earlier empires, and that has a boundless ability to disguise its malevolent work. If it were true, it would be a remarkable development in human history. Indeed, it would be as once touted in the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union in bloc by Francis Fukuyama, the end of history. That is, the end of historical conflict and systemic changes. It would be an expression of the boastful and fanciful capitalist post-Mao motto, Tina, there is no alternative to capitalism. There are others who assert that the U.S. is not so omnipotent and that it is in decline and may be failing, but that the U.S. and its close allies constitute the only imperialism that matters and that if all its detractors, victims, opponents, and its imperialist rivals band together, liberation will truly be achieved with the demise of U.S. imperialism. This view also holds that whenever big powers like China or Russia rise in opposition to the U.S., they deserve the support and applause from progressive and revolutionary forces. Holding this view are a variety of forces who cling to the notion that the Cold War division of the world is still extant, and that popular protests in recent years from Libya to Syria, Ukraine and Venezuela, as well as Brazil and Turkey, Iran, even inside Western China, are all examples of U.S. meddling and desperate interference. This view holds that without such U.S. manipulation and interference and disruption, the people would, by and large, be happy or passive. This is by any measure an amazing claim, denying the existence of class contradictions and struggles within each of these countries, and making it appear that the conspiratorial powers of the U.S. to manipulate events are unparalleled in reach and effectiveness. In practical political terms, this view distorts the basic reality that many regimes, bourgeois states that usually evoke one ethnic or religious or nationalist section of the people over others, aim to repress the sharpening class struggle and broad discontent and rebellion. The book N.B. Turner's Is China an Imperialist Country? Paul in Woodinville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's up? Hi, Tom. I want to ask the question, 
how long can a union be sustained where there are states that are tending towards fascism? How, how long can those alliances withstand? Now, especially with the Supreme Court last week essentially overturning the 14th Amendment, the Equal Protection Clause, by letting uh, upholding the Texas abortion law, and of course that could be applied to any any of the amendments of the Bill of Rights or any of your rights that you have as a United States citizen, just write a law that says, uh, I mean, it's been bad about the media that California could write a law that essentially outlawing guns by making it uh, vigilante. Uh, you know, vigil- Paul, what do you think of the premise that what we're looking at right now in terms of an era is probably, probably its closest parallel is the 1880s, just immediately after the failure of Reconstruction, and that it's you know, that was a temporary era. You know, it, it lasted arguably 50, 60 years, but it was a temporary thing. That this will last much less, less it won't last as long. Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll accept that if we... if we It's a backsliding analyze, moment, in other words. Yeah, well, yeah, we have to analyze the components. And that the, the along with the failure of Reconstruction became the Gilded Age, where a few people became filthy rich. Right. And then finally it all crashed, and it was, it, it was the Roosevelt era that brought it back, because it really did. It, it, it was about, you're right, about 50 years of the Gilded Age, where the rich got very, very rich. Most people were very, very poor. There was the uh, cities became, uh, you know, people came, uh, by 1920, it was the, the break point where people, half the people came to cities. But yeah, I think it's, it's, it's that's applicable, yeah. I would agree with that. So then the answer to your question would be the Republic will survive. It just won't look the same. Maybe. (laughs) That was only, that was it. It's all empirical, Tom. It's all empirical. I get it. I get it. Paul, thanks for the call. Amento in Los Angeles County? Yeah, hi, Tom. Hey, what's up? I just wanted to say that, I mean, you know, all the problems that our country has, I don't see any problem. This doesn't have an obvious solution. If we had a party there, really had the will to solve them. I mean, most of the problems they don't even really address, and you know, in a, in a serious manner. Well, the know, Democrats are doing a lot of good, uh, Amento. It's just that you know they've got these two guys, uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, well, who are taking well, millions well, of dollars. I, 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 they don't even address slavery. Slavery is still just as prevalent as ever, and no one's even you know they they, they pretend. That I don't think slavery is as prevalent as ever. I mean, they did just bust some guys down in Georgia who literally were bringing people from Mexico in and at gunpoint holding them in slavery. But that's the exception rather than the rule now in Georgia. Okay, well, okay, yeah, it's a modified version of it. But I think the prisons, the private prisons, are nothing but slavery. But they never claim to have eliminated that slavery. That slavery is allowed by the 13th Amendment. Well, that slavery, this slavery, is sla- slavery is slavery. Yeah, okay. You, know what I mean? okay. And, you, and, you, and you, you win the argument. <laughs> I'll give you that. You have millions of people, okay? Amento, thanks a lot for the call. And, uh, th- and thanks for listening to us on SiriusXM. We'll be back tomorrow, same bat time, same bat place, channel, whatever, however you may get the program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us. It's a collaborative effort, don't you know? So get out there, get active, sign up. There's some great organizations. See you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and the people around you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.